This series of Crisis Talks is brought to you by Noggin, integrated incident management software that helps organisations manage disruption smarter. As a free offer to all Crisis Talks listeners, you'll get access to their COVID-19 return to work software module. Visit www.noggin.io forward slash crisis talks to learn more and get access to the module. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. G'day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Crisis Talks for 2021. My name is Grant Chisnell and I'm really excited to be back with you this year and taking you through some of the amazing stories of resilience and adversity uh, from some people that have led through some of the most yeah, amazing situations that you could be confronted with. We're kicking the series off this year with the long-awaited series covering the Deepwater Horizon incident. Uh, which was a little over 10 years ago, which occurred over in the Gulf of Mexico. Clint Honeycutt was a H&S advisor on the uh, incident management team. He was activated very early as part of the whole incident management team out of Houston. And his story talks through the whole response, uh, some of the longer term issues that they faced once they identified the, um, the rig that had been damaged and then subsequently sunk and then obviously the impacts that happen on the community. Some of the really fascinating stories and insights you'll get out of this is the way that they went about their preparedness, uh, the way that they drilled and prepared themselves and their teams to be ready for situations like this. Uh, and then importantly, you'll hear also some of the impacts on him. And I think it's one of the key messages we're sort of starting to pick up at the moment, which is quite poignant given where we are with COVID and the impact that we've had on all of our people, is that it's often the internal people that are part of those response teams, that are part of the incident management teams, uh, part of the crisis management teams that have been going at such a high tempo. As we rolled forward into 2021, we need to really factor in that this is a marathon and not a sprint, and we can't keep going back to the well on the same people all the time uh, to respond to these circumstances. We need to build that capacity. We need to build that capability in our teams and really focus on preparing the whole organization for these types of crisis events. This year is an exciting new year. The podcast is being sponsored by Noggin, who provides some amazing integrated incident management software. You've heard the offer that we had at the front there, so please take up the offer at www.noggin.io forward slash crisis talks, particularly for their COVID-19 module. Uh, There's a free offer exclusive through Crisis Talks listeners. But also importantly, just email me at grant at leftofboom.com.au and give me some uh, ideas this year on who you'd like to hear from and the crisis events that you'd like to hear more about. 
Um, you're going to see a little bit of a change up this year because we are actually going to go into a bit more analysis around these type of events. So we'll be talking through about some of the, the challenges that do present and how also that can be uh, addressed in your own organizational preparedness. So exciting new year, 2021. Look forward to your ongoing support. Um, and here's to being extremely well prepared and confident uh, in the face of any uncertainty for the remainder of 2021 and going forward. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Crisis Talks. Today we're interviewing a man by the name of Clint Honeycutt, who was the H&S advisor at the time of the Deepwater Horizon incident on the 20th of April in 2010. Today we're going to be talking about that incident. We'll walk back through what happened in the lead up to the Deepwater Horizon tragedy. We'll go through Clint's role in the incident management team and we'll discuss a bit about what happened behind the scenes in those first few weeks of the Deepwater Horizon tragedy. Clint Honeycutt, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Thank you, Grant. Glad to be here. Now, uh, Clint, can you just give us a bit of a background, firstly, of yourself and your current role, and, and then I suppose we'll go into a bit of a background in the lead up to the Deepwater Horizon incident. All right, well, if I just run down uh, my work history, uh, I'll, I'll start with, um, I was in the US Navy for four years. Mm -hmm. um, I got out of the, the US Navy and, uh, and joined the Army National Guard uh, while I was in college, and I did that for four years. Um, right before I graduated college, me and my father started a company called uh, Safety Connection. Safety Connection does fall protection and rescue consulting and training. Um, when we started, uh, it was just, just him and I, and roughly after about six months, we were up to roughly about 20 people doing fall protection and rescue uh, all over the world for just about every industry you can think of. From there, in 2005, uh, I started with BP, and when I started with BP, I was an HSE advisor supporting, uh, they have a production and drilling facility uh, that, that was being built for offshore, and uh, it's called the Deepwater Thunder Horse, and uh, when I came on, uh, I worked in the shipyard for roughly about nine months supporting that project, uh, then it went offshore, um, and uh, supported it from the time that it went offshore up until uh, first oil. Uh, at that time, I went to an office HSC role, yeah. supporting drilling and completions operations for a project called Mad Dog. There's another project called Thunder Horse. I mean, I uh, the names of these, uh, these projects, mate. <laughs> What's that? I love the names of these projects, Mad Dog, Thunder Horse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they come up with great names, no doubt. Uh, but look, massive facilities and uh, and 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 great people. So the the, the names are no different, I guess. Uh, so uh, I supported the Mad Dog, uh, the Holstein, uh, then uh, then the intervention work that we did on production platforms. So that was that was my role at the time that we had the Deepwater Horizon incident. Um, and within those sort of roles there, Clint, what was the sort of, you know, what was sort of day-to-day -day look like for you out uh, working in this industry? I mean, we're talking about massive machinery. For those that have no idea about the oil and gas industry, particularly over in the Gulf of Mexico, can you give everyone a bit of a snapshot for what life was like working on these rigs or working with these big, uh, these massive platforms? Well, I was really lucky. Both Thunder Horse, Mad Dog and Holstein were all production and drilling facilities. So what that means is, uh, they have a drilling package uh, where where they drill wells, uh, but they also have 
production facility where they can run production. After they drill, they can connect in and run production through the facility and back into the pipeline to produce oil as well. So um, these facilities are massive. Um, I don't know the uh, personnel on board, which we call the POB. Um, I don't remember. I, I, I'm assuming it's somewhere around 150 people on each of these locations. Um, and just to give you, put it in context, at the time, Mad Dog, uh, uh, well, Holstein was the biggest uh, spar rig and production facility at the time. Um, the Deepwater Thunder Horse was the biggest in the world, um, the deep, uh, production and drilling facility. Um, so, you know, from a magnitude side, I was really lucky to work on great big projects. Um, and when you think about uh, from an office perspective, the way that I supported that was uh, as we had daily meetings that talked about the safety, the safe operations of the rig. Um, and in addition, uh, there was um, HSC support offshore on the rig. And I basically supported them to be able to, you know, questions they had or things that came up. Uh, I was able to work with the, the people on the rig to be able to support the on-site team. So uh, I supported the leadership in town. They supported the uh, leadership on the uh, facilities. So that was kind of day-to-day -day, uh, what I did. And uh, you were based in Houston at the time, is that correct? That's correct. All three of those, are, are all, uh, all the projects that I supported from the, from the office uh, was currently in the Gulf of Mexico, and, uh, and then I was out of Houston. Now, leading up to the, 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 the 20th of April in 2010, you know, what would, would have been your experience working with BP at that time? And, and there been any other incidents or other sort of issues that you'd sort of observed or been involved in? Uh, there had. Uh, actually, one of the, one of the things uh, about my time at BP is I had plenty of experience in emergency response. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as I mentioned, my job duties were uh, were really the safe operations of the rig. Um, however, uh, due to hurricanes or different events that happened, um, I, I had, uh, in, in my stint there, I had a lot of experience in emergency response. Um, they had a, a, an incident with, uh, with uh, the Deepwater Thunder Horse when I was on that. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an incident where we demanded the platform for a hurricane coming in. When we demanded the platform, um, I won't get into all the details on why it happened, but they had uh, they shut down the rig, and what they do is they completely deman it. And when they did, there's valves they shut, and those valves uh, either weren't installed right or they were faulty. I, I can't remember the the final conclusion on that, but nonetheless, uh, the the valves let in salt water, um, and uh, even before the hurricane came in, uh, the deep water. Um, Thunder Horse actually listed over. So two of the columns actually filled up with water yeah. uh, and the, the facility listed over it. And if you looked at it, you can Google pictures and you can see it listing. Uh, and when it's listing over, you would think that it's, it's, it's ready to, to tumble over. It's However, yeah, the, the data showed that it actually rode the hurricane out in that state, which was wow. uh, pretty significant. Yeah, especially when you look at the pictures and see them. Um, so there was a, uh, you know, every time after a hurricane, you have flyovers to see where the facilities are, uh, how they manage through the, through the hurricane or through the weather. And uh, so we did that. Uh, and ICS stands up for that. Yeah. Um, so we stand up the emergency response because you never know what you're going to find. 
Okay. Um, so you'd, stand up before, you'd stand up before a cyclone or a hurricane um, and, and sort of de- and do the prep for demanding or what would be your sort of escalation process? Yeah, there was an escalation pro- process for demanding. Yeah. Uh, in addition, when after the hurricane is, is passed, you, you stand up the ICS uh, in case there's, you know, get, uh, leaks or um, maybe a vessel sank, anything like that to where it can be managed, uh, you know, quickly. Gotcha. And the ICS, for everyone's benefit, can you tell everyone what the ICS stands for, mate? That's the incident command system. So, you know, how we respond in the structure, the organizational structure to be able to support an incident, along yeah. with uh, all the, uh, the tools to be able to support an incident as well. Yeah. And so in Australia, we have what's called the Australasian Inter-Service Incident Management System, so it's AIMS, which is a bit of a variant on ICS. Um, had you come across AIMS as well later in life when you were working for BHP over here in Australia? Yeah, uh, definitely had discussions around it. Um, yeah. However, when when uh, and I didn't really talk about my background after BP, but yeah. uh, when I worked with BHP and then also Hess, uh, I worked in the Asia Pacific uh, mm-hmm. region. Um, however, uh, even when I was in, with both of those companies in those areas, um, the our emergency response still re- relied on the ICS because yeah. that's what our company had set up and uh, and worked under. Uh, and then what we do is we tag that into the local government to make sure that there's uh, no differences. And if there are, then we just manage those differences accordingly. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a uh, bit of a standard globally. The ICS is what we've seen, and and there's always a bit of pushback or a bit of parochialism uh, around local sort of arrangements and the like. But yeah, certainly has stood up. Um, and from all accounts, it stood up in these events, Clint. So leading into that Thunder Horse event, you know, uh, what sort of training had you done and what sort of preparedness work do you normally do as part of these operations? Well, with leading up to the Thunder Horse incident, uh, the listing, um, the, this really, uh, I mean, it was after a hurricane. We go out there and we see its listing. Um, so we had to uh, initiate uh, a, an on-scene um, uh, emergency response team to, to board the vessel. So we had to do a safety plan to, to board the vessel. Uh, we had to look at all the possibilities, um, you know, and, and all the emergencies that I've been a part of and, uh, and all the ones that, that I've drilled for, obviously your first priority is people. So you, you question putting people on and you start safety plans and emergency response. If you do that, then what else might you have to do? So, um, so look, we put all that together um, to be able to get on the vessel itself. Um, and then uh, actually BP tried to, uh, to pump out the, the water to, to righten the, the, uh, uh, the, the facility, um, but couldn't do it. So they hired a, um, a salvage company to come in, bring the pumps, bring the right equipment and actually pump it out. And they were successfully able to do that. Um, so for, for that, um, I, I supported the ICS, but I wasn't a safety officer and H and unit leader. Um, I, I just supported from getting things done that, that, that I could help with. What was the normal sort of routine you'd go through as part of that general emergency response or the incident management team processes? So what, can you can walk everyone through the level of preparedness you had as an organization at the time. So with the BP response, 
actually BP is one of those that that one of those companies that really did emergency response well. Um, and I think it was you know just just the the number of things that they've had in the past, uh, the um, uh, the learnings that they they pulled from other incidents, um, and they they really just showed um, that. Uh, emergency response was something that was important to them. And I seen that from day one. So, uh, and that showed up in that, the, the build, their main building in Houston. Um, they have a floor that was dedicated to emergency response. It had a control center. It, it, it sat in the middle and then it had uh, a hallway all the way around it with rooms on the outside for each of, each of the breakouts, which I would call, you know, all, all of your, your H&S unit leader had a room your safety officers uh you know that, that every group had a room that they could break out in and and go do work to bring back to the command center so just the way that it's set up the communications uh the software um the drills that we would do we we did drills uh, at least quarterly and major drills um it wasn't just desktops it was you know all day long starting at at seven o'clock ending at five with the the government agencies coast yeah. the u.s coast guard um the, uh, the 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 different agencies that support the operations that we're doing offshore mm -hmm. um would all be there and be invited so you know we we as in bp did that very well um and what we did is out of every drill we would pull learnings um like okay with this scenario we would need um, you know, these things. So for the ICS system to work, you have different forms. Yep. And we would have, uh, like, for example, the safety team would have to develop what ICS 208, which is the safety plan, yep. uh, or safety message as well. Um, so, you know, for each incident that you could think of, we would develop those plans and pull that information together, and then have templates ready you know, one of the great things about emergency response is that if, if you think about all the scenarios that could happen and you plan for them, really the emergency response itself is really just walking through the different plans that you've already thought through yeah. with a few nuances, right? There's, there's, there's usually only a, you know, yeah, it's not going to be exact, but if you only have to tweak something, you know, you're talking minutes versus it would take hours to develop something from scratch. Um, so we did a really good job of actually having all of that on a stick that we travel with that actually went to the safety officer as, uh, as the safety officer swaps out every week. I see you like have a USB that you travel with and with all the documentation, all the procedures, et cetera. That's right. On, on all the starting points that we would need, uh, yeah. in, in an emergency. You talk about the drills and those sort of all day drills and the preparedness. I mean, how important are they in developing that real muscle memory with these sorts of processes? Look, I, I personally think it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a must have, it's critical. Mm. Um, you know, I think companies look at, you know, how much insurance they have and, and you know, how much money in reserve do they have to take care of these things? Uh, the, the drills and the, um, and, and the structure and having all of those pieces together, um, is the insurance. I mean, that's, you know, that saves millions of dollars in, in how fast you can respond um, to a situation like the Deepwater Horizon where you have an oil spill, um, you know, and all, 
and, and time matters, right? When, uh, when you're putting out X number of barrels per minute uh, into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you know, every, everything that you come with to the table with from a preparedness standpoint uh, just reduces that time and there, therefore decreases the impact uh, and increases the money that the company can save on the back end that they don't have to spend. As we transition from COVID-19 to the new normal, are you re-evaluating your business continuity and crisis management practices? You'll need resilience software you can trust. Thankfully, Noggin's next generation 2.0 incident management platform is here to help. Whether it be managing a pandemic, a natural disaster, a corporate crisis, a safety incident, or a major security event, Noggin helps organizations seamlessly transition from business as usual to crisis mode. With dedicated solutions for business continuity, crisis management, work safety, emergency management, operational security, and case management, Noggin is best positioned to support you in your time of need. Learn more at www.noggin.io. Walking into the event now, Clint, can you walk us through the you know the twentieth of April, the lead up to the event, and your thoughts or memories from the time? Yeah, I tell you what. Uh, I, since I received the email from you to to to, to do this, um, you know that's it's it's been what uh, ten years. Ten years. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, you know the the memories that I have. Uh, actually, I just. It, are, are kind of just starting to come back just because I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but quite honestly, there was a lot that I had just, uh, just forgot about um, mm. to, to a certain degree. I mean, uh, and, and what I'm talking about is the intricate details about working the event. Yeah. Uh, the event itself obviously will never go away. That's, that's something that's, uh, you know, that, that's etched in my mind. However, the, the details about timing and what we did and, and what that looked like, um, when I first started thinking about it, it just kind of a blur. Yeah. So working up to the event, um, basically, uh, I mentioned that I supported uh, drilling and completions operations in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, the Deepwater Horizon was not one of the facilities that I supported, but it was uh, a facility that a peer of mine did support. Yeah. Um, and I had actually been out on the Deepwater Horizon about six months before investigating an incident because when we when we have certain in certain levels of incidents um we we send different people outside of that operation in to be able to look at it so yeah um so six months prior i'd actually been out to the deep water horizon and i had been out prior to it before uh when i worked for safety connection uh mm-hmm. also uh, at other intervals before that and, and the rig was a transocean rig, so it was contracted by BP at the time. How did that sort of relationship work then when you were, when you were doing these types of investigations or, or what was the sort of day-to-day relationship uh, working with an organisation that's not necessarily your own, uh, your own people? Well, look, it's tough. I think when you look at it general, I won't necessarily speak to the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, specifically, but when you look at it in general, um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, well, first of all, it's the government uh, expects BP um, to, to operate on that lease that, that they took from the government. So, um, so that lease is under B, BP control 
yeah. um, as far as the government sees that. Um, now, BP hires Transocean to come in and drill the well. Uh, that well is, is the, the, the drilling of the well is overseen by BP. Um, uh, then they contract Transocean to come in and, and do that work. So um, generally, it's, uh, you, you know, look, both parties uh, have the same goal in mind to drill a successful well safely and to move on to the next job that is the you know that's that's the goal and uh you know on, on all the rigs that i've been a part of uh offshore um with bp um you know that that's the end end of the day goal is to to drill the well safely and to to move on to the next mm. um, however it does throw some complications in there when you look at um you know, Transocean is a, as a company has safety rules and regulations and the way that they do their business. Uh, BP also has safety rules and regulations and the way that they do their business. So you have to bring those two together. And normally the way that we do it uh, and the way that we were doing it at the time was through a bridging document. You would bridge yeah. the two systems. Yeah, um, You would take the most, um, uh, the most stringent of the two systems uh, and you would operate under that, uh, keeping in mind that it has to at least meet the government requirements of where we're working. So that's, in a nutshell, kind of a quick way of saying that's the way that we worked. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that's consistent across the whole industry, isn't it? Uh, it is. It did, uh, if we go, uh, you take that same rig and bring it over to, uh, to Australia and, and, you know, work off the western coast, uh, it's, it's done the, a, a very similar way. Um, uh, there are some little nuances that are different with the Australian government versus the U S government or wherever else in the world that we're working. Um, but, and, but holistically it's, it's done very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 20th of April, do you remember what you were doing that day? Tim? Well, so the day, um, I, I do not. Uh, the, however, I went to sleep at the end of that day and that's what I remember, uh, it, because, um, when I learned about the Deepwater Horizon, uh, basically my home phone, my cell phone and text messages, uh, it, it all blew up at the same time. And, uh, it was roughly about one or two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that day I was the safety officer, um, for, uh, for BP at that time. And, uh, and all the phones went off at once. And uh, so obviously startled, uh, jumped up, grabbed the phone. And, and look, quite frankly, uh, I, you know, we have 24 hours operations. So uh, a, a call in the middle of the night wasn't something that, you know, was, was real odd. Um, one o'clock, it's, it's usually something pretty serious. Um, however, when this went off, uh, it just said, uh, report to the incident command center uh, at the BP office in Houston. Um, and that's what I remember. I remember not, it didn't say anything else. And, and my mind obviously just started, started moving into uh, in, in several different, several different ways. When you receive that first call and you realize it's not a drill, what did go through your mind at that time? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that it's not a drill because that, that was the first thing it said is this is not a drill, you know, <laughs> Um, make your way, however it said it, basically come, come into the incident command center. And uh, so, you know, you, you just kind of, uh, 
for me, it was one is get ready. Uh, so, so I didn't want anything to stop me from getting, okay, I, I, I got to remember to put pants on and, and get out the door. Um, so, so that was kind of initial. And then when I, when I got in my vehicle and I was driving was kind of where it hit me. It was like, okay, well this, this must be extremely serious at one o'clock in the morning. I didn't know who to call. Um, and I knew that I was safety officer and look, it could have been a production facility. It could be a drilling facility. I was a safety officer, no matter what, what thing came up. So I had no idea that it was a rig. I had, you know, none of that. Only thing going through my mind. Yeah, for you, it could have been anything. It could have been, you know, something on land, could have been something offshore, uh, or it could have been what it was. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I didn't know. Uh, but on the drive, all I could think of was, okay, so going through my mind, just hitting the checks yeah. with the drills and the training that I had had in ICS, you know, what's the first thing that I need to do when I get there? I need to look at the situation board. I need to understand what that looks like. My first priority is people. What is the first things that I need to do around people and, and accounting for people? So all of those things were running through my mind about exactly what I had to do. Um, and it was less about, you know, I wonder what's happening. It was more about what do I need to do when I get there? Yeah, we, uh, every, everyone I've spoken to that have been through you know, major incidents, not dissimilar to these, maybe different scale, obviously, but they talk about that mental checklist uh, or the actual physical checklist of going through it. So Matt Gill from Beaconsfield Mine Manager, you know, the same sort of issue for him. It was a short drive for him to go to the, to the mine site when they'd heard the reports about the collapse. Um, but yeah, again, same thing. He's working through his mind about what it could be, what the situation may be, and what he needs to go through is that checklist. Did you have a sort of a checklist or a protocol or a procedure once you got into the office there, Clint? We did. Uh, so we actually have uh, at at at, B, at BP we had a um, a safety office um, for the HNS unit leader and the safety officer, uh, and on in that office uh, we had everything you needed. Uh, if you, you name it, it's, it was there in, in folders, on drives, computers. Yeah. Um, so uh, in, in addition to that, uh, you know, you, you pull out your ICS guide because that's, you know, honestly, it, it, and it sounds kind of cliche, like, you know, it sounds like a commercial, but it's not. It's, it's one of those things you pull out that guide and you see, okay, I'm the HNS unit leader or I'm the safety officer. So here's exactly what I do. Um, and if you've been trained to go to that, you, you read the first one, like, okay, check, done, check, done. Oh, I forgot that. So I have to go do this. Um, so honestly, first thing I did when I went in, I didn't go into that office yet. I went to go to the situation board, yep. um, to see, uh, what the, uh, ICS, um, 201, um, which is basically just the, the briefing document on the yeah, situation the part, part in that process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, to see. What the, what's the situation? And, uh, and that was when I've, I, I, I got the first kind of, oh, this is, you know, this is major, a rig's on fire. We have people in the water. You're, you're, you know, they're picking up people, they have wounded. Um, so, you know, those things are running through my mind. However, uh, the training and, and I guess that muscle memory wasn't like, oh, oh my God, you know, I don't know what, you know, cause 
look, walking into that, you can easily get yourself in a place where if you haven't ran through that scenario at least once or twice, yeah. that you, you're just staring at a picture of a rig on fire and you're thinking about people in the water versus thinking about, okay, priority one people, what do we have to do? I need to get, you know, POV. I need to make sure that we understood who was on site so we can start accounting for people. Uh, I need to start looking for facilities that can take, you know, wounded, uh, you know, and, and has the capability of pulling them off the back of a boat. You know, all of those things, what are, what's the weather like, um, you know, all of those things were initially what I thought about, uh, you know, it, 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 it would go without saying that, you know, when you see that, the first thing is your heart kind of sinks, yeah. right? To think about that um, at the time, I, you could look at the flames and go, we probably have fatalities associated with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when you look at those pictures, right? And if you got people in the water, um, however, you also, there's some hope there that, you know, th- the facility takes emergency response just as serious as what I'm describing, in, if not more, as we do in ICS, right, uh, or in the response in Houston. They drill on that every day. They, they talk about, they, they do um, getting gas back drills, uh, you know, so these are things that, that Transocean does really well is, is they drill and get people in the right spots. So, you know, instantly I hope that there is no fatalities and, but when you look at just how big the fire is and where it's at, you're, you're thinking that, you know, kind of the worst hits you at once and your heart kind of just sinks. Yeah. Um, uh, then you realize that, you know, me sitting here and, and, and thinking about that doesn't do anybody any good. I need to move down where I need to go. And that's where that muscle memory really comes into play. ICS 201, you've had that situation report. You're starting to combine the team. You know, how close to training now in that moment does everything play out? So you always hear when you're doing these exercises, oh, in reality, we would do this. You're in reality now. How close to that training does things play out? You know, that's a, it's a good question. It's kind of hard to answer in, in the way that um, it's, it's obviously not going to play out verbatim, right? It's, no. it, it's just that, that's not going to happen because of time frame and then also situational. And the real pressure, obviously, of what you're seeing and, and what you're confronted by and the pressure and also the emotion, right? It, it, there's, there's no way to really account for what hits you when, you know, when certain things are brought up and when certain things are, are talked about in that situation room. Uh, you know, it, am I going to, again, just kind of sit here and with a deer in the headlights look, um, you know, just uh, not know what to do or am I gonna move past that and and go react and and look come back to that at some point later um which you know which there's there's no way around right you're going to come back at some point but at least uh, you know make progress and move forward so to answer your question is that um I, i personally think that the real thing played out very similar to the way that we thought it would um because you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a drill that we had where we had either pulled people off or we had people in the water where we weren't accounting for people. Yeah. And thinking about all the different ways that we would have to do that. 
would have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in this, so context, for, in this context, you haven't got contact or was it very difficult to have contact with people on the, on the rig or how did you start to get that accountability? So um, I think those are the vague details that, that honestly, I, 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 I can tell you what I think I remember, yeah. but I'll be really honest after 10 years and think about the intricate details about, you know, how we were getting that communication. We were actually really lucky because uh, there was, uh, we have supply boats that are out there, you know, re regularly with all the facilities that BP had out there. Um, there was multiple supply boats. Um, I remember there was a feed um, live off the back of a supply boat looking at the rig on fire. Yeah. Um, so when, when I walked in, they were getting that set up if, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, but we had a live feed of everything going on. Um, we also had uh, several vessels that were picking people up out of the water. Yeah. Um, and we had contact with those vessels. Um, so we, we did have, and, and look, uh, credit to Transocean and all the drills and the things that they had done prior because they were also accounting for people. They had, you know, they had lists of people. They knew who they had. Yeah. They knew where people were and who wasn't account, uh, accounted for. Mm. Um, but so, you know, there was, there was a multitude of things going on. However, we did have communications. And again, that goes, that goes back to the drills and the planning part of that. Uh, because we had satellite phones for the, uh, the company men, had multiple sat satellite phones, so we had direct contact to them. Yeah. Um, in the addition, company men were BP representatives on the rig, is that right? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and so did Transocean also had uh, satellite phones. So, you know, it, it was, it, this wasn't by chance that we had communication. It was through really good planning and good people doing great work, honestly. That, um, that initial assessment, you're starting to really spin up the team now. Um, can you talk us through what you recall of some of that routine as you're getting established and as you're working through the problems? Yeah, what I can't remember is uh, the, the first day, uh, and, and I mentioned that I arrived in the middle of the night, so it was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when, when I arrived. We, we had, by morning, before daylight, we had everybody accounted for that was going to be accounted for. Yep. Um, there was uh, there was several that um, were not accounted for, but we knew who those were, um, and we had the wounded um, on supply sh uh, on supply vessels uh, or on vessels, and uh, and then we had a facility that could handle those wounded, which was, uh, was one of BP's platforms. Um, so we had the wounded moved over to the platform. They brought them from the, uh, from the boats up to the facility to be able to uh, either medevac them off or to be able to do the uh, emergency triage on the facility. They have a full, um, they have a, uh, uh, it's a, a, a medical, I won't say a medical staff, but they have a, uh, a medic on board yep. uh, with, a, with a full uh, medical facility uh, on the facility. So, um, so they were able to pull people up and, and get people uh, off that were hurt 
uh, and needed to be sent in or needed to be treated. Yes. Um, the other th the other thing they, that they did was um, Transocean didn't want uh, their people to be taking off the boat. Um, so basically everybody decided to stay on that wasn't hurt and ride the vessels in uh, into the port. And that's that's what they did. And roughly it's about a 16 hour ride um, from where we were to if if I remember correctly and might be off a couple of hours, but basically a 16 hour ride uh, on a on a slow on a slower supply boat. There's faster boats, but on the, on the bigger supply boats that we were using, uh, it's roughly about what it takes. Um, so they so they went in. So you're in that sort of uh, you're in the instant command center. It's been that sort of first few hours that you're working through the problems. Um, you've got that accountability for everyone. Um, did you have a sense of what was going on outside of the bubble? Uh, so outside of the bubble, meaning uh, kind of what's next? Uh, outside or, of your room, I suppose, more than anything else. You know, the uh, interest that started you know, that this would have garnered really, really initially, I suppose, over there. Um, and then the, I suppose, what was happening with the scale of the the, the problem that you were dealing with? Well, at that time, not. I, I mean, at least I didn't have have an idea. I knew um, from an emergency response standpoint their objectives, and we were meeting those objectives. Honestly, I was I was head down into objectives. Yeah, um, it was what how, how important. How, impo how important are those objectives for you? Because this is one thing we always speak about with clients that are dealing with crises. You know, setting that really clear objective at the start is so critical. What were some of the objectives that do you recall what they were at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, people and yep. environment. People were first yep. uh, and environment was second. Um, uh, then asset damage and, and stuff like that uh, falls out to third. Yep. Um, so I, that's what I remember. Um, and it really helps because... Um, look, there's, you know, I'm standing up, there was a, an environmental team that was, you know, so I'm safety officer, there's an environmental officer that, that, that has a job to do and, and other people that are, are starting to work their angles um, of, of what they need to work in, in, in the incident command team, right? So, um, you know, so the, the, the good thing about the objectives is if I have something come in, uh, a call about something that isn't about people. Um, it was it was an easy say. Hey, within the objectives, this this doesn't fall here right now. Come back later, um, yeah. or, or write what you need on the on the on the wall in our uh, safety office. And and as as we can get to it, we will. Um, but we need the resources, and we need you know we needed all of those things. So the safety teams. Uh, you know, although the incident command uh, team stood up uh, instantly, um, the safety uh, support for BP, which I mean, BP is a huge company uh, in in that area, probably have at least a couple of thousand people. Um, so, you know, when we talk about safety people, you're looking at teams of, you know, the Gulf of Mexico had, I think the Gulf of Mexico team alone, the safety team alone was probably 150 people. So, they're getting up that next morning and coming into work and everybody wants to help. Right. So it's, it's about who comes in and kind of what are they doing and what help we need and what resources can we bring in? Um, and instantly we knew it was going to be a 24 hour, uh, uh, incident command. So you, you had to send, send people got up, 
came to work and you had to send them home because they would need to come in at six or seven o'clock that night yeah. uh, to relieve the day team. Um, what I can't remember is when the rig sank. Um, uh, I remember when we accounted for the people, I can't remember if it was that day that the rig caught on fire that it sank or if it was the next day. Yeah. Um, I think it was the next day. Um, but all of that is really a blur for me, um, mainly because that first day went from three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I probably left there if I left there. And again, I, I can't remember the details, yeah. but if, if I did, it was probably at six or seven that night. Um, and, and I turned it over to somebody else. And I think that's what happened. Um, because the next morning when I came in, I believe that we had the feed on the rig and we watched it sink. We watched it sink. Um, and when we watched it sink was kind of the game changer. The first part of it was uh, our people and, and getting them accounted for and, and, and our, our, the wounded you know, treatment and, and all of that. Um, the second part of it was, was kind of a gut check that, oh crap, now it sank. And we have no way to control the, the, the oil coming up uh, that, that, that's there now. And what kind of impact is this rig sinking also going to have on that, right? Is it going to sink down where it's over the well and it creates a bigger problem? Um, but, but nonetheless, when you think about, you know, a well um, just, uh, just spilling oil with no way to stop it, um, you, you know that you're in it for the long haul. And that's what I meant by, you know, it, it was kind of a, a, a gut check. It just went from a um, emergency that you, you kind of have, con I'll call it have control over, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's there and it's on fire and, and you have this thing. You're in that um, mode. You're in response mode. Yeah. You've, you're sort of controlling what you can control and working through the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're, now something has happened that, uh, at least me and look i'm sure the some others have we're already thinking about the the bigger piece for me that was the uh, oh no you know we could be in this for months that concludes episode one of crisis talks for 2021 the Deepwater horizon crisis in the next episode we go through the immediate actions after the rig sunk the realisation of the impact that the environmental disaster would cause on the wider Gulf community and the subsequent actions of Clint and the incident management team as they move through the next phases of the crisis response.